Welcome to the Echo Ever Proudly podcast. I'm Brian Egan from the class of 86. And as we celebrate Thanksgiving this weekend, a quick thank you for sharing these Gonzaga stories that we're telling here with your circle of trust. Please tap that five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't mind, be like Jack Sheen of the class of 59 and write a review as well. Would love that. Thank you, Jack. Appreciate it. By the way, J.J. Mitchell from the class of 2013 was the first to send us a voice memo holiday greeting for our Christmas episode that's upcoming. Here's what we're looking for. This is J.J. Mitchell, class of 2013. Merry Christmas from Houston, Texas. Yeah, J.J. nailed it. And if you want to get your shout out on, we've got instructions in the show notes. Time to jump into episode 12. And I'll be honest, this one's going to feel a little different from the last couple. But I know those of you who are history buffs will totally dig this. One of the most celebrated wins in Gonzaga sports history took place 76 years ago this week. On November 30th of 1945, under the lights at Bird Stadium, Gonzaga's football team, portrayed in a famous illustration as David, upset Goliath, the barnstorming national powerhouse, Boys Town. Our first guest today is a Gonzaga alum from the class of 81. He's an author, a researcher, an award-winning documentarian, Lewis Blandon. Lewis, how are you? Good about yourself, sir? Really good, Lewis. Thanks for asking. Now, a few months back, you may have read some of Lewis's work that he provided for Gonzaga Magazine about this game, but there's so much more to this story than just what he wrote a few weeks back for the Bicentennial issue. Tell us a little bit before we get into the Boys Town game, Lewis, about your background. I'm a producer of documentaries. The most well-known documentary I, uh, I was a producer on, a piece on Jeremiah Denton, who was a U.S. senator from Alabama, but also was a POW in Vietnam, and he's famous for being interviewed by a Japanese reporter underneath the Klieg likes. He was blinking his eyes continuously. Intelligence didn't know what he was doing, naval intelligence, and they figured out he was blinking torture in Morse code. And uh, that documentary deals with his time as a POW and then his time as a U.S. senator. And we won a Mora Award and a regional Emmy for Best Documentary. Congratulations on that. Lewis also writes articles. He does research for other books. He's working on a project on the side right now for that as well. But want to get into Boys Town. And the 1945 game was the big win, but we need to set up what happened in 1943 first. Well, Boys Town, I think, uh, started in the 1930s in Omaha as, uh, as an orphanage and for um, wayward children. They built a football team, and that was one of the mechanisms for fundraising was their football team. So they would do West Coast tours and East Coast tours. And then, of course, it helped to have a movie made with Spencer Tracy, I believe. They became well-known through that with these football tours. So in 1943 and 45, they did Eastern Swings. The Gonzaga game was scheduled November in 1943 at, at Griffin Stadium. And two years later, they did another Eastern Swing and played Gonzaga at Bird Stadium in Maryland in 1945. Now, those two years, it was a big difference. Because in 1943, you had the kids, the boys who were juniors and seniors, knowing they were going to be drafted, Gonzaga kids. They're going to go serve in the war. They were going to join the Navy or the Army. There was no Air Force like we have today. It was the Army Air Force. Either you signed up on your own or you were drafted and you were going to you know, serve. If you're one of the unlucky ones, you served in combat, either on a ship or on a plane or uh, as a foot soldier. They were fighting in Europe and they were fighting in the Pacific. So these kids were, you know, didn't know what their future hold. Now, this first game at Griffith Stadium in 1943, it was a big deal. 12,000 people estimated show up to the game. 
that's a lot at the time. The stadium, I believe, seated 35,000. It was an odd constructed stadium. You had a huge wall in what is right field in the baseball configuration. It jutted back in and there was a, behind the fence was a, a, an oak tree there that stood there for years. And behind the fences were all these residential homes. So it was in the middle of a neighborhood and it was in the middle of a heart of an African-American community. It was near U Street, Florida Avenue. If you know DC, you know how it is now. Back then it was the heart of the African-American cultural community. Bakeries lining up the streets. You had the uh, City of God Church. You know, if you left the game, you would hear these spirituals. Elder Mershu was the, was the minister. He would hold rallies at Griffin Stadium. So it was a cultural center for African-Americans as well as for white DC residents for football and baseball and other events like operas, wrestling matches, and boxing. And the dignitaries included Eleanor Roosevelt. Press reports indicate that she attended the game with other dignitaries. Names were not listed. They also mentioned in the in press reports, the Evening Star, the Washington Post, that several Gonzaga, famous Gonzaga ex-athletes showed up. And there was a marching band that played there. The Catholic University Cadet Corps and band were the halftime performers. Tickets ran from 55 cents, $1.10, and $2.10. They were sold at the, what still exists, the Mayflower Hotel and the Willard, which is now an office building. I think it's a hotel too. And the Earl and the Capitol Theaters, which no longer exist. The money raised from that football game in 1943 went to Father Flanagan's Boys Town. Was there any kind of a split with Gonzaga or was Gonzaga happy just to help and to create the uh, good press? They got good press and they also got a $1,000 check, which is equivalent around 14000 today's money which went to their athletic fund. Boys Town got $13,094.42, which is an equivalent of approximately $191,000 in today's dollars. Boys Town at the time was considered an elite team. Gotcha. But these backgrounds were different than the other schools. They had criminal records, they got in trouble with the law, or they were um, orphaned. Now, the result of the first game at Griffith Stadium in 1943 was a 12-6 win by Boys Town, who made a brilliant last-minute play. And Gonzaga jumped up to a 6-0 lead. Boys Town tied the game at the end of the first period. Now, Boys Town dominated the game offensively, but Gonzaga was able to hold them until Clarence Adams, who was considered one of the best players in the country, African-American player, scored a, a run for 23 yards, eluding a Gonzaga pretty fair well-known athlete in Gonzaga history named Chester Coakley. And the paper described that Coakley's diving tackle, he missed, Adams scored standing up. And then Gonzaga, with four minutes left, they, they went to the uh, Boys Town 33-yard line. The quarterback, a guy named Zanger, threw the ball, and Coakley broke free on a pattern. And the, the way the Post described it, seeking rescue from defeat by air, he threw the pass. Zanger threw the pass. Uh, Adams was covering Coakley, and the ball hit Coakley's hands, and it bounced off and bobbled off, and the game was over, and they lost. Local press covered it extensively. There were several papers at the time, and the um, African-American newspapers uh, covered it. Uh, it got national press on AP Wire. If you do a search on newspapers.com, for example, you'll find stories, very short stories, about the game. Some of them are, have mistakes in them, I discovered. You know, one, uh, I relied on the, on the Post writers and the Evening Star writers because they were at the game. But you know, I found excerpts from papers from Spokane, from L.A., from San Francisco, from Montana, from Honolulu. Uh, all the way in that part of the country, as well as in Eastern Seaboard. Now, at the time in 1943, on a war footing, did it, in a sporting event like that 
really bring people together and give them a way to get their, you know, obviously baseball was a national pastime, but even baseball was different on the war footing. Did something like this really help everyone in the DC area at the time? Yes. And at the time, Gonzaga was considered what we would consider Notre Dame today in Washington, DC. That meant they were, first of all, consistent winners. And of thousands of Washingtonians adopted them, even though they never entered Gonzaga's halls as their team. Nowadays, you don't have that, you know, but back then, and many of them, as it was said, regarded themselves as streetcar alumni. So it was a unifying game. You know, there were soldiers at the games, there were naval plebes at the game, people involved in the military who attended the game as fans. So you have the positive effect of helping out Boys Town, but there's also this other effect of this game happening. It's actually breaking societal norms. For white institutions in the 40s, was you don't play interracial teams or all black teams. It just didn't happen. And in this case, it did. And getting that second game played in 1945 was a tougher putt for Joe Kozik, but he made it happen. Boys Town was doing an Eastern tour. They had an open date in late November. They could play Gonzaga. Kozik couldn't find a place to play the game. Now, Lewis, the natural question would be, why not play the second game at Griffith Stadium? Why did it have to go to Bird Stadium? Atlanta Daily World, which is an African-American newspaper, reported that because George Preston Marshall, of the owner of the NFL team, and it was known as a racist, refused a permit to be allowed to play, for them to play in the game. So he reached out to the University of Maryland, and they rented Bird Stadium. It was open for that date in November, and that's where they played. The financial benefit to Boys Town was great based on the 1943 game. And for Gonzaga, it got him in the limelight nationally. Kozik especially wanted to play him again because it was he wanted to play the best. They didn't believe that any children, boys, should not be allowed not to play because of the color of their skin. It was an intersectional game. It was a, a game for fundraising. He knew he wouldn't lose scheduling at this time, like he would in the 50s when he played Cardoza in the city championship. Segregation was a reality in 1943 and again in 1945, and that meant when Boys Town came to town, well, not all of their players were treated equally. In 43, they were, Boys Town was led to believe that only their white players could stay at the hotel they were staying at. They only had one black there at the time, so he stayed with the local family. So to prevent a repetition of what happened in 43, they had four African-American players on the team. They reached out to Gonzaga. Father Cornelius Hurley, who arranged housing for the four black players at the homes of two black families. So the night before the game, the 45 game, the white players, they went to a dinner at a place called the Lynn Haven Restaurant, which doesn't exist anymore. Black players weren't invited, and they ended up going to some nondescript seafood restaurant. Just think about that culture right back then. The Gonzaga team right now eat together, play together, and live together when they go on the road. Back then, these players on Boys Town couldn't. And Kozik was probably fully aware of that. Lewis, I got a chance to visit with Randy Kozik, the son of the late Joe Kozik, for an upcoming Echo Ever Proudly episode that focuses on the life of Joe Kozik. But he shared an interesting story about how Bear Bryant at Maryland actually helped Kozik prepare to beat Boys Town. They were running a team formation. He had never seen that. He was forced to defend against it. <laughs> At that time, Bear Bryant was the coach at the University of Maryland in 1945. He's coached there one year. He wanted my dad, because he spoke Polish, to help him with recruiting in northeastern Pennsylvania. The deal was that he would he sent one of his assistant coaches up to Baltimore to scout Boys Town when they were playing the week before, came back with, a, I guess, would be a plan, defended the T formation there. 
He, he was resourceful. That's Randy Kozik talking about the connection between Bear Bryant and Gonzaga's legendary Joe Kozik. Now, Lewis, as you've researched the 1945 game, did you see anything officially on whether Bear Bryant watched the game that took place at Bird Stadium? No, I haven't found any evidence, but it's most likely he attended the game because he was scouting both teams. What do you make of Bear Bryant using Kozik as a recruiting strategy in uh, Northeast Pennsylvania? I wouldn't be surprised he did that. He did something similar to that when he recruited Joe Namath, who was from Beaver Falls. Namath was supposed to go to Maryland. He didn't have pass his college boards. When Brian found out, he failed his college boards. He told him, we can get him in here, go up there and get him. So he ended up in Alabama. But he used a, a coach who was a player of his at one time, Howard Schnellenberger, to go up there because he had a way of relating with people from that part of the country. And I don't know if Kozik was involved in it. That I, I've never, the stuff I read, I never found anything about Kozik being involved in that. But he could have been. And Lewis, going into that 1945 game, Boys Town were heavy favorites. Boys Town was rolling. Going into the game, they were 11-0, outscoring their opponents 365-50. to 50. And they were, they were lauded as the army of the schoolboy teams, quote-unquote. And Gonzaga, just two teams scored more than seven points against Boys Town. Well, Gonzaga was 7-1, and one, and they were outscoring their opponents 173-37. to 37, And they only had uh, one loss, which was a 6-0 loss to Coolidge. So game day comes. It's November 30th, 1945, and the newspapers land on everyone's front doorsteps. And in the sports section is an illustration depicting Gonzaga as the heavy underdogs, but they choose a biblical reference that turned out to be prophetic. There was a famous cartoon that demonstrated Gonzaga as David and um, Goliath was portrayed by Boys Town. And it showed this hulking, almost Neanderthal-looking guy um, with huge muscles um, looking down on a minuscule Gonzaga player holding a um, slingshot. That was in the, in the Evening Star. It was a huge upset. All right, Lewis, let's get into the nitty-gritty of the game itself in 1945. This is from the Evening Star. Rated four touchdowns behind Father Flanagan's 11, the Swampoodle Wildcats may turn the tide with the inspirational play of which they are capable. Now, the last paragraph of that article, Lewis, that I'm sure you looked at as well, said that Boys Town was a heavy favorite in 1943, only won 12 to 6, but Gonzaga gave Skip Powerang's boys an even battle all the way. That might be the pattern of tonight's contest if the, quote, terrors of Swamp Poodle turn on that Irish fight. The Gonzaga, the previous week, played St. John's in the Thanksgiving game, and they beat them 27-6. They got some injuries. Their offensive stars, Pat O'Neill, was unavailable. There was all-prep tackle Bernie Levine was suffering from a cold, but he ended up playing. Another Eagle star, Phil Daly, was sick, but he suited up and played. So they were four touchdown underdogs. And it was O'Neill that made the pronouncement before the game that the team went by, quote, you always win a game if you want it badly enough. And that's what the message that Kozik took you know, after, he, after that quote came in the paper. So despite the injury and all the rainy weather, Kozik thought he had an advantage with his offensive line. These figures seem so small nowadays, so tiny, but back then it was huge. Gonzaga had a physical edge with a line averaging 171 pounds compared to Boys Town's 160. Just think about how things have changed. And the field was really, really muddy because of all the rain that occurred the previous days. So the first half was scoreless, marred by fumbles from both teams. Gonzaga dominated the whole game, all four periods. And many believed that if the field wasn't muddy, they would have won by 
a huger margin than they did. Gonzaga had these stalwarts, Gil Buckingham, Billy Deschard, and Johnny O'Keefe that ran behind the Gonzaga offensive line. So late in the third quarter, Boystown was on their own 10-yard line when the center, Chester Odom, gave a poor snap and halfback Frank Rowe tried to get the ball, picked it up, and O'Keefe was on top of him. As the paper said, laid him flat in the end zone for a safety. So Gonzaga had a 2-0 lead in the third period. So Boystown kicks off to them they, after the safety, and then Gonzaga just went 45 yards down the field using Deshard, Daly, and Buckingham pounding the ball with a series of rushes to the Boystown 10. And on a reverse, Buckingham scored a touchdown, and the, and the extra point went through. It was 9-0. And that's how the game ended. Only once did Boystown cross midfield. That was on an interceptor return from one of Daly's passes. At the end of the game, the team celebrated. They won a game that no one expected them to win. That was the last time they played. There was talk about them playing several more times, but nothing ever materialized. Do you think because Gonzaga played them so tough in both games and beat them in one that they were like, yeah, let's leave the terrors of Swamp Poodle alone? That's a good question. I asked, uh, I reached out to Boystown to their um, their office. They have their own uh, historian who gave me some, sent me some pictures of their uniforms so you know, we could colorize them for the article. I think it was just the, the dates and the finances more than anything else. Boystown would play anybody. But the populations were shifting, and they were looking for different locations, playing more games in the Midwest, in Chicago, St. Louis, Des Moines, to get athletes from that area, too. So as we look back now, there's the football game and the football significance, but there's also the social significance. And even late in life, Joe Kozik just really focused on the football game. When he was interviewed 35 years later in 1980 for the Washington Post, I'll quote what he said. It was just a football game to me. And coming from my little town, I didn't know much about integration. People made a lot about the game, but what the hell? Boys Town was undefeated, and we wanted to play a good team. We won 9 nothing. It was a great game. I'm sure he took personal satisfaction that he played an integrated team because the steps he took in the 50s, to me, indicates that he was, it was a gradual. he was doing it gradually. But for him, he didn't want to toot his own horn, nor did he want his players to toot their own horn. He wanted his players to be adults about it. It was a game. We beat a good team. Let's move on. Lewis, it was a much different feeling in the country in the fall of 1945, just versus 1943. But Joe Kozik, whether he intended to or not, this game, you believe, had a pretty big ripple effect. 45 was different. The war was over. There was a sense of relief, liberation. Things were changing. What was going to be experienced in the 50s with the convergence of rock and roll and television and all this other stuff that we take for granted today was just emerging then. So it was going to be a cultural lifestyle change. At the same time, if we fought in World War II for freedom and democracy and equality, then the same thing had to happen here. So the civil rights movement took big steps at that time with Truman desegregating the army was a big thing in 1947. With Jackie Robinson going into the major leagues, that was a national sport back then. It wasn't football. It sent the message. And these Boys Town games seems trivial, but indirectly played a role in that because Boys Town was, had African-American players and Gonzaga didn't. And Lewis, it's not too much longer after Jackie Robinson breaks the color barrier in baseball that Gabe Smith breaks the color barrier at Gonzaga. Yes, he made the team as a sophomore in 1951, I believe. Local schools began to refuse to schedule Gonzaga. So he... he decided that he would find an alternative for his players. He packed them on trains and flatbed trucks and took them out of town to play. I mean, he find an opponent. His philosophy was, we'll find somebody to play and we'll play them. Anybody who wanted to play for Gonzaga will be able to play. He didn't care if he was 
black, white. He didn't give a darn about it. It was not fair to preclude someone from playing because of their color. And he would play anybody who's, who's willing to play him, if he had a black player or not. Anybody who wants to play me, will play. By 1955, an all-white Gonzaga squad played an all-black Cardosa for the city championship. It ended up at 6-6 tie. It was a very good, well-played, clean game. Knowing Kozik, that was the only way the team was going to play. It was a clean game. No dirty stuff, no, no shenanigans. This game really alienated the establishment against Gonzaga, who at that time, for a few years, found it difficult to schedule games because they played an all-black squad. For Kozik, he did the right thing. And by the 60s, uh, you could see the, the, that he won. He won the battle because all the teams, all the Catholic teams were, were desegregated. They were playing seg- desegregated teams. It was a slow battle, and you wish things could go faster. But he was probably fighting a lot of politics, a lot of issues with, with the city, and he did it the way he thought he could do it, slow, grinding pace. The interviews he did in 1980 gave me the conviction that he thought he did the right thing. He was very simple with that. He wasn't going to get into elaborate explanations. It was the right thing to do. We play Cardosa. And if nobody wants to play us, then we'll find people who want, to, who want to play a game with us, and we'll schedule them. If you were to make a Gonzaga Mount Rushmore, Joe Kozik is definitely on it. That's for sure. We've got more Joe Kozik stories a little later on in the Echo Ever Proudly podcast season one, a visit with his son Randy, and also memories from Bill Rowan of the class of 57. Lewis, as a guy who majored in history but then ended up in radio, I find your researching style to be so fascinating. Before we let you go, Speak to today's Gonzaga student. What would you tell them about the field of history? person interested in history, there's more avenues you can use history for. There's a lot more stuff you can use it for. When I was in freshman in college and a senior at Gonzaga, I didn't realize that, you know, if you want to build a road, you need to do a historical analysis of the area. If you want to build a radio tower, you need to do an environmental historical analysis of the land around it. There's so many avenues you can take history beyond the, the regular reading a book and ha- writing a book and reading it. Gonzaga being an uh, urban in- institution was important for me because I tend to look at the world through what I saw Gonzaga taught me. So it's, you know, I'd be walking down the streets. I've probably walked almost every street in, in Washington in my lifetime. Uh, I would look at the people. I would look at the buildings. I would, I would think about you know, their lives. What was there 25, 30, 40 years ago? What's going to be there in the future? The critical thinking that Gonzaga taught me enabled me to, to view the, not only writing, but to view the world visually and through my hearing. So I would see things, I would hear things, and I would digest things. I don't think I would have gotten that capability if I wasn't gone to an urban high school in the late 70s, early 80s. It's a different school now. Um, no doubt. But for me, it was perfect. It is Thanksgiving weekend. Are there any teachers that you would thank for your career in history? Father Wheeler and Mr. Carolyn. One of the things that got me interested from Father Wheeler was his interest in the guillotine. He brought a, a model guillotine in the classroom. A little tiny thing, but it was fascinating. And I, I was interested in how, who conceived that? How was that developed? Why was it developed? Did it work? When I say work, did it prevent crime? Or was it used to get rid of your enemies? Stuff like that. And Carolyn made me understand that history was more than facts. It was also understanding people's motives, understanding the currents of the time, what happened 100 years ago affects what happens today. Yeah, the late Mr. Carolyn was my era as well, Lewis, and those maps he could draw. I remember one class I come in, it was, a, it was a cold winter day, and I'm sitting, I think it was the fourth floor of Pullman Hall is where the class was, and he starts drawing a map of Europe, and he has a, a non-filtered camel cigarette in his hand, and he's 
drawing that map and we're just watching him. I'm just timing myself when he's going to shake his hand and he does it at the end when he finishes the Iberian Peninsula. The brilliant. Perfectly yeah. scaled. Yeah. So often I think of Carolyn when I'm doing my, Mr. Carolyn, when I'm doing my research or thinking of a subject or reading a book, he really got my interest going. If young student at Gonzaga who's taking a history course and has to do a paper, finds a subject that he's interested in. The, the great thing about now with the, with the digital capability is that you can find information, newspapers, magazines uh, that were published 100 years ago, but you can get them. You can look at them. You can see how they were thinking, the way they wrote back then, the language they used, the way they viewed the world. It's an incredible tool to use. The One of the reasons I got so much information on this project was to newspapers that have been digitized that I can look at and see what people were thinking, information that I normally would not have found otherwise. That's Lewis Blanding from the class of 81. I'm going to share his LinkedIn profile in the show notes. So if you want to connect with Lewis and uh, learn more about the projects he's got his hands on these days, uh, he's quite an interesting guy. Now, we're not done with episode 12. No, it's Thanksgiving week, which means there was a smoker. Uh, there was an alumni hockey game. I know the crew team's getting back together. Uh, Friday on I Street, both the rugby and football programs are going to have their alumni games. Lee Kelly from the rugby program, how are you? Good. How you doing? I'm good. Let everyone know what you guys have planned for Friday morning on I Street. About four years ago, a couple of the guys came up to me and said, look, why don't we play touch? That way nobody gets hurt and more people will participate. And I said, hey, look, this tournament is for you guys. However you want to do it, is fine with me. I was able to get Toshi Palamo, who is touch guru in the area, to come down, help organize, bring the referees. And he also plays and coaches uh, a local team, which is National Ch Touch Champions, of which there are some Gonzaga alums play on that team. Toshi is now one of the coaches for Old Glory. If you're familiar, Paul Sheehy, one of our alumnus, is national team player for USA and played in the 91 World Cup. Had three sons play rugby at Gonzaga and coached with me at Gonzaga. And now he is one of the owners of the professional team, Old Glory. Paul helped sponsor the game and there'll be some of the Old Glory players playing. They will have some professional players playing in the tournament, which will make it kind of fun. You know, we just encourage participation. It's a great way for us to reconnect with each other and tell lies to each other and... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, you know, make fun of each other and uh, socialize a little bit afterwards. If anyone who's connected to rugby is able to hear this before the game, it's taking place on Friday the 26th. We'll start forming the teams at 9.30. Tournament will go from 10 to approximately 1 o'clock. Dubliner afterwards? Uh, probably Kelly's would probably be more accommodating for us. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Lee. Uh, yep. The Gonzaga football alumni game is taking place on I Street Friday afternoon. Gonzaga's head football coach, Randy Trivers, welcome. This is becoming a thing. We've had a, a great range of former players come back from different decades. Uh, and sometimes you, there's some surprises. Some of the guys that uh, maybe have a little bit of gray or lost a little bit of hair are uh, stars out there. We want to go out there and, and try to have, you know, just have a good time. Of course, Gonzaga men always get competitive. The guys are going to want to do well for sure. But, you know, hopefully we get a good number of guys so that we don't have to have everybody out there going both ways for, you know, playing Iron Man ball like Chuck Bednarik back in the day or something like that. You know, we, we want to uh, hopefully have enough subs where guys can be fresh and uh, meniscus and the ACLs and the ankles and the shoulders and all that to uh, maybe just a little post 
uh, gain soreness the next couple of days, right? You've been doing this for four years now. How can we make it better, right? Anything in life, how can you make it better? Do we have a live stream set up and so we all can laugh at these guys? We have not streamed it in the past, you know, which is a great idea. And maybe that will you know, uh, motivate guy, more guys to come out and want to do it down the road. You make a great play in this game yep. that you want to be able to talk about for the, you know, the next 20, 25 years. Pixar didn't happen, right, coach? That's right. That's right. No, it's, it's awesome. And, you know, so many guys, as you know, they get better the further away they get from their graduation. You know, the stories that they tell, they're, they're, they're better and better and better. And then sometimes we we start believing those stories uh, more than we should. And we're getting further away from that graduation day and we got to go out there and perform. You forget, boy, I don't, I don't move quite like I used to move. I moved well for the first play or maybe two. But man, by the time I got to play three, I felt a little different. It's really uh, a lot of fun. I, what, what I have enjoyed about it is just seeing two things. Guys come together that hadn't seen each other in a while. And then the guys that certainly were not on I Street at the same time, but, but they're getting to know each other. So to connect and then just that that realization that all these guys have something strong in common, this common bond and having played football at Gonzaga. It's fun for me to, to see and try to help um, you know, cultivate those relationships, good, positive vibe of, of gratitude or Thanksgiving time. And it's Thanksgiving, you know, so food, football and faith. Right. So all, all good. Well, it's great to visit with you. I'm assuming the over under on a pulled hamstring is at least three. <laughs> um, but I hope everybody has a great time. And if you want more information, we've got the link in the show notes. Coach, appreciate the time visiting with us on the Echo Ever Proudly podcast. A pleasure, pleasure to be here and happy Thanksgiving to all. Go Eagles. That puts a wrap on episode 12 of the Echo Ever Proudly podcast. Don't forget to check the show notes if you want to send a shout out for our Christmas episode. Send it to podcast at gonzaga.org. At the end of next week is the annual Mother's Club Gala. The Christmas event is in person this year, and to celebrate Gonzaga moms, we're going to talk to one. Her father went to Gonzaga. She taught at Gonzaga. Her son went to Gonzaga. Two of them, actually. Talking about Helen Free. She'll be our special guest next week. Don't miss it. Be sure to follow, subscribe, and share the Echo Ever Proudly podcast with anyone who you know loves Gonzaga. Until next time, ad maiorium dei gloriam and hail Gonzaga. March, remember, victory, Gonzaga.